early church used to greet one another. Literally, instead of saying hi, they would say peace to one another, even as they experienced relentless persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. That is Christian peace. That is the peace that steadied Longfellow's hand when he wrote this poem. And that's what we're going to be studying today. And so what I want to be able to do is to break this sermon into five different parts. We're going to look at the passage on peace, which will be Luke chapter 2. And then we'll look at both the presence and the absence of peace. And then the perspective for peace and the promise of peace. So let's start with that passage. We'll be jumping right here into Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And then in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. For honest, this passage is kind of familiar, maybe a little too familiar, and I won't judge you if you might have zoned out partway through reading that passage, because we've heard it. We've heard it many times. We've heard it in Christmas carols. We've heard it in Christmas sermons. We've heard it probably in some Charlie Brown episode on Christmas. But the fact that it's an overfamiliar passage is kind of important in sort of an ironic take, it plays a trick on us, and we can easily overlook some really important aspects to the declaration the angels give at the end, peace on earth. And so I want to focus on three of those aspects that are often overlooked, that being the shepherds, the city, and the angels. So let's start with the shepherds, because if we're honest as well, we're really not that familiar with shepherds today. Most of us don't have friends who are shepherds, coworkers who are shepherds. We don't really understand the lifestyle of a shepherd. In fact, our view of shepherds tends to be a little warm and fuzzy compared to the reality. Um, so let's try to get familiar with them. First, does anybody know why shepherds would have been out in the fields at this time instead of in their normal kind of gated space? Anybody? Going once, going twice. So what's that? Yeah, sort of. It was kind of feeding, but it was a little bit more than that. So typically, and this is not commonly known, shepherds were not out in the fields all the time. Normally, they were in a constricted space to make sure that sheep didn't run away. Uh, However, there was one season where shepherds didn't have that experience, and that was during lambing season, usually in the spring. And so about once a year, the shepherds would make time for mother sheep to be able to give birth to lambs. And they needed a lot of space to do that. And they needed to be able to kind of get away from the city to do that. And so that's why the shepherds were out in their fields at this time. And that's important to know because that space that the shepherds had from the rest of the city in many ways signifies the social distance that shepherds suffered in their everyday life. Shepherds were not considered honorable by their profession. At this point in human history, society had moved almost entirely away from nomadic lifestyles, where shepherds were really important. When society was nomadic, you had to pick up your tent and move, and you needed shepherds to be able to control and manage sheep. But as society became more concentrated around towns and cities, and living became more permanent, the status of a shepherd dropped 
precipitously. They're viewed as dirty. They're viewed as lesser than. In fact, their testimony in court was not even considered reliable. And so these men, most often were men, um, were dealing with a kind of social ostracization um, that few in their society experienced. Michael Card, one of my favorite uh, authors and also songwriters, captures it by saying this. Shepherds watch, listening to lambs bleat, tired backs, worn out and cold feet, all life long, living like outcasts, all life long, longing for life. And yet look who gets the first news of the news that the Hebrews have been waiting for for generations. It's shepherds. This is the way of God. He invades the ways of this world, the things that we think are important, and he flips them upside down. And he infuses this world with the values of his kingdom. He opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He amplifies the voice of the silence, like it says in Proverbs 31. And eventually, Jesus himself, God in human form, identifies himself as the good shepherd. Think of the significance of that, given what we know now about shepherds. The VIPs to the greatest announcement that this world has ever seen were people who would be least likely to be believed and least likely to have ever received that kind of news. David Bentley Hart, a theologian, speaks to this dynamic. He says that when the peasant Christ tells the aristocrat Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, or when Paul warns Christians against any commerce with the systems of the God of this world, or when Christ commands his followers to forgive those who wrong them in excess of all natural justice, or likens the wealthy citizen at heaven's gate to a camel attempting to sleep through, slip through a needle's eye. The gospel is announced as something that is essentially subversive to the accustomed order. And that's exactly what happened on that first Christmas morning. The angels didn't go to the people with great status, great wealth, great prestige in Bethlehem. They went to the shepherds out in the field doing the dirty work because that is the way of God. Christmas isn't about pine trees and Christmas lights and gifts in large part, Christmas is about God's intentional decision to identify with the marginalized, even as a baby to poor parents. And we need to remember that family. We need to remind one another of that. As we are in a society right now that places so much value on prestige and image and identity and status and climbing the ladder, that is not what God is concerned about. We know from the book of 1 Samuel that man looks out the outward appearance God looks at the heart, and that needs to be what we're about as Christians, and that's what's being taught even in this passage. Let's go to the second thing that's often overlooked, and that's the town. Notice that the angels refer to Bethlehem in Luke 2 as the city of David. That's an intentional decision on the angels' part. Bethlehem was not a significant town. It was small. It didn't have a lot of trade. It didn't have any valuable resources. It wasn't particularly strategic in its location, but its one claim to fame was its connection to David. David was the youngest in his family, and yet he went on to become the giant slayer. He went on to become perhaps the greatest king in all of Hebrew history. He went on to become a man who the Bible describes as someone after God's own heart. And that connection that the city had to David was something that they held on to closely. It was a huge part of their identity, and it was an encouragement to them. And this is not the first time in the Bible that Scripture uses history to encourage the Hebrew people. In fact, Scripture uses history usually in one of two different ways. Either 
to convict and challenge the people of God or to remind them and encourage them of the fact that they are God's people. And the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, as well as First and Second Chronicles, illustrate this point. If you read those four books, you'll notice that they're pretty similar. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles basically tell the same story. They tell the history of the kings of Israel from Solomon until captivity. But there's some pretty key differences. First and Second Kings spends a lot of time focusing on the sin and the corruption and the failure of the kings, particularly of the northern kingdom, Israel. Whereas First and Second Chronicles while telling largely the same story, chooses to focus on other things. It focuses on the more faithful kings. It focuses on the high points. It focuses on the successes, those rare moments where God was truly with his people and they were with him. And so it's important to ask, well, why is that? Why tell the same story in two different ways? Well, because first and second Kings is using those stories to convict the Hebrew people. It's trying to bring them back to God. It's trying to show them the, the consequences of sin. Whereas First and Second Chronicles is written to the Hebrews while they're in captivity, doubting, fearing, suffering at the hands of oppressors. First and Second Chronicles isn't written to convict. It's written to encourage. It's written to remind the people of their royal lineage, of their connection back to God at a time where they likely doubted whether or not God even cared about them. And that's exactly what the angels are doing here by referring to Bethlehem as the city of David. There's been 400 years of silence from God. No new writings, no new prophets. And yet God is using this moment here through the angels to remind the shepherds that they are not lost, but they are at the city of David, the famous king, the man after God's own heart, and to not lose faith. Then there's the third factor, the third key element that we often overlook, and that's the angels. And you might be thinking, the angels? How do we overlook the angels? This is like where the angel ornaments come from, is this passage. And that's true. But there's an aspect to the angels that we often overlook, and it's the source of joy. Why is it that they are rejoicing all together as one? It isn't just that Jesus has been born. That's a huge part of it. Um, but Jesus being born is not an isolated event. It's part of a larger story called the gospel, the good news of God taking the brokenness of this world and redeeming it for his glory and for our good. And we know that that's what the angels were excited about, is that whole story. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about the gospel as this thing that angels long to look into, something they examine and study. That kind of fervor, that kind of passion... I would imagine at some point all of us have felt that something that Pastor Leon has brought up over and over again in our series on revival in Nehemiah, but usually that passion wanes. And that's because we're fighting a fight for joy and hope in our walk with the Lord. For some of us, the fight that we're fighting is apathy. Paul talks about that in Romans, to not be slothful, but to be fervent. Sometimes we just get lazy and we we don't want to make the time to do what the angels are doing here, to look longingly into the gospel. For some of us, we're battling lacking discipline or distraction. Um, That's what we see in Luke chapter 10 with Mary and Martha, where Martha is so busy doing things that she thinks are important that she misses an opportunity to spend time with the Savior of the world. And so many of us are so busy doing things we think are important, our jobs, uh, even our families, our, our responsibilities, our volunteer projects. We're so busy that we're not willing to make time to do the things the angels are doing, to meditate 
on the truths of Scripture. And then for some of us, we're battling arrogance. We don't think we need to do this. We think we're doing fine, thank you very much. Our houses are in good shape. We have some money in our bank account. We've got a smile on our face. What role does God have to play in any of that? And Psalms and Proverbs are both really clear. Whoever trusts in his own wisdom is a fool. And as someone who struggles with arrogance myself, this is perhaps the most lethal battle of all the battles I've just described. And I encourage us not to fall into that trap, into the lies that the enemy puts before us. All those battles are lies, apathy, distraction, arrogance. They're lies that come from the enemy. Lies are his native tongue. And if we want to have the, the passion and the fervor that the angels have here, we have to continue to have the perseverance to go back into that fight and to fight for joy and excitement about the gospel that the angels have. So here we are in this passage, maybe the most famous Christmas passage. We're now in the most famous verse of that passage. And now maybe we're looking at the most famous word of that famous verse of that famous passage. And that's peace. Peace is the crux of this passage. And so now what we need to do is ask, what is this word that they're talking about? What is peace? And so now we shift to the next part of the sermon, which is the presence of peace. And whenever we study a word like this, family, it's so important that we take the time to carefully unpack what scripture is using that word to mean and not what we understand the word to mean in our 21st century context. I preached a sermon not too long ago about Psalm 1, and the word blessed is used in that psalm a lot. And it's really easy for us to import our understanding of what it means to be blessed when in fact, how that word is being used in Scripture is a lot different. It doesn't mean just sort of an easy life. It means to follow a straight path. And that's a big difference. The same is true here. In English, when we use the word peace in our everyday life, typically what it really refers to is an absence of conflict or a kind of tranquility in our life. Basically imagine, and this isn't too hard to imagine for those of us who are parents, putting the kids to sleep, cleaning up the living room, lighting the fire, maybe having a cup of tea, and just sighing. Like, that's what we mean when we say peace. It's kind of like a, a, a cleansing of the chaos. Like, just things are just quiet. That is not peace in Scripture. That is a very truncated kind of peace. Peace in Scripture is shalom. It means a state of universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's so much more comprehensive than the way we talk about it. It's not just an absence of conflict. It's a God-guided, God-centered wholeness that magnifies the created value, dignity, and worth of every person. It's, it's an experience where uh, our gifts are uh, gainfully employed. It's where joy and wonder are birthed on a regular basis. It's where our natural needs are satisfied consistently it's where humans enjoy harmony. It's where humans and God enjoy harmony. It's where humans and creation enjoy harmony. It's basically the way things were always supposed to be, the way things were when God created this world before sin entered into it. Tim Keller, I think, gives probably the best explanation and illustration of shalom. Uh, and I, I really appreciate it, and I like to use it when I talk about this subject. So imagine each of you brought to church today um, some kind of thread or cloth. Um, and it's different kinds, different colors, whatever. And you brought those threads to me, and you laid them on my arms, and I have all of these threads with me. And I just drop them on the floor. I have a pile of colorful stuff, 
but I don't have something that's beautiful yet or useful because everything is, is sort of chaotic and, and independent and not particularly interwoven at that point. But if I take a step back and I sit down, not here because there's candles, and I take a moment to think about how to bring all of these different strings and strands and garments together, and I begin to weave them together and through one another intentionally, deliberately, so that they complement each other and they complete each other, and I create a tapestry out of that. That is shalom. That's what creation is supposed to be like, an interwovenness, an interdependence, where everyone is giving and taking in equal measure, where we are experiencing what Keller talks about, that sense of wholeness and flourishing and delight. That is what peace means in Scripture. It's so much more than the absence of conflict. And whenever peace is talked about in Scripture, almost always there are two other concepts that follow shortly because they are closely linked. And those are the concepts of mishvat and tzedekah, or justice and righteousness. Those two concepts are closely linked to peace. A gentleman named Nicholas Wolstroff explains how justice is linked to shalom. This is his focus and study as a theologian and a scholar. He says, I don't have to argue to you that shalom is fully present among human beings and between God and human beings when there is no injustice in those relationships. Shalom in that way incorporates justice. It's bigger than justice. Justice in our relationships by no means exhausts shalom. Shalom is more than justice, but justice is, as it were, the ground floor of shalom. And justice not in the sense just of punishment for your wrongdoing, but justice in the sense of people being given their due, people being treated as they ought to be treated. That is the ground floor of shalom. But not just justice, righteousness as well is closely connected to shalom. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter 32. He says that the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. So in order to get peace, there needs to be righteousness first. It is the effect, peace is the effect of righteousness. And when you think about the history of the people of God, you think about, for example, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Those men, those women are marked by a kind of sacrifice uh, that is powerful, a sacrifice that looks like righteousness. And you might be thinking, sacrifice, righteousness, that's not necessarily how I would define righteousness. Righteousness is like this abstract concept about the holiness of God. I would beg to differ. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And I rely on a scholar named Bruce Walkey, who's arguably the best Old Testament scholar on the subject of the wisdom literature. Look at how he defines righteousness. Righteousness is a social term, signifying that people do right by one another. And in a nutshell, righteousness means to disadvantage oneself as necessary in order to advantage others. And wickedness means to disadvantage others in order to advantage oneself. Another way of saying that is that to be righteous is to empty myself in order to fill the needs of others, whereas wickedness is emptying others in order to fill my needs. That's righteousness. That's a core component of shalom, justice and righteousness. And those are the characteristics that define any example of peacemaking that you see in Scripture. You will always see justice. You will always see righteousness. If you don't believe me, take a look at the ultimate example of Jesus Christ himself. 
He emptied himself to fill us. He sacrificed himself so we can live. The prophet Isaiah says that by his stripes, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. That is what is necessary in order for shalom to occur in this world. But if we're honest, we know that that is not the common experience in this world. That kind of interwovenness, that kind of sacrificial love for one another, that's not here. What we see instead is an absence of peace in this world. And it's interesting that in such a closely linked way, the Feast of the Innocents is linked to Christmas. You may not have heard of the Feast of the Innocents before, and in a lot of ways it's because we don't really like to talk about it. But shortly after Jesus was born, the king in that area at the time, a man named Herod, ordered the murder of all children under the age of two in and around the city of Bethlehem. And we see that story laid out here in Matthew 2. Picture that. You know, being a father of a kid, <laughs> it makes stories like this just a little bit more pointed. The ruler who exists to create peace for this society uses his soldiers and his influence to enter into a defenseless city, relying on him for protection, and murders every child under the age of two. That is not a pleasant thing to think about, and that is forever linked to the story of Christmas. We will never be able to escape that. That is always going to be there. Just like when we think about peace at Christmas, the brokenness of this world is always going to be there. Our instinct when we read stuff like this is to recoil. Our instinct when we look at the brokenness of the world is to recoil, to, to hide ourselves from it, to insulate ourselves from it in our lifestyle choices, in our day-to-day experiences. But family, that is not what Advent is about. The entire purpose of this season is learning, as Longfellow did, to stare into the brokenness of this world. The brokenness that we see in our own lives, the brokenness we see in our families, and our blocks, and our cities, and all around us. And to not recoil, but to respond with hope, and peace, and love, and joy. And we can't do that, family. We can't learn how to do that. We can't provide encouraging counsel. We can't provide hope to our coworkers. We can't provide any of those things if we're not willing to look at the brokenness of this world. We have to. That is the whole point of Advent. And we can be encouraged because we know that looking into these things is not all that there is or that we're going to be overcome. Jesus said it plainly in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can hold tightly to that promise, family. We don't have to be afraid. But we do have to wrestle with the sin that is in this world. And I want to do that by looking at three different aspects to sin in the world. The cosmic dimension of it, the historic dimension of it, and then the corporate or more local dimension of it. And when I say cosmic, I don't mean like in outer space. I mean the world, the world that we experience today, and creation in particular. Most of the time when we think about sin and brokenness, we think about human relationships. But sin affected creation as well. That is clear from scripture. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8. He talks about how sin has disrupted not just our individual standing with God, but creation. He says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, meaning Adam. And we know, he says in verse 22, that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I would never make an analogy to the pains of childbirth. Never. 
And I don't encourage any of you to ever analogize anything to the pain of childbirth. Unless you've gone through it, then you can do whatever you want. No questions. Um, having had one kid with another on the way, this is, this is tough language. But, but Paul's not exaggerating. This is, this is exactly what cre- uh, creation is undergoing. It's that painful. It elicits that kind of groaning, groaning that we see in the world. And it's because of how creation was marred. We see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. When God originally created the world, he said that it was all very good, not sort of good, not kind of good, very good. But then as a result of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, creation itself was subjected to futility, as Paul said, that it was cursed and that it became hard to work with. And there are examples of this form of brokenness uh, that quickly come to mind if we take the time to think about it. And maybe the most recent example is Hurricane Maria, a hurricane that for whatever reason, most of us can't name, even though it led to massive, massive death. Hurricane Maria, not Hurricane Katrina, which is, for whatever reason, more familiar and easy to remember, was a hurricane that just swept through um, the Gulf of Mexico not too long ago and ravaged the island nations all throughout uh, that area, including Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, an American territory, saw somewhere between 3,000 and 4,500 people killed which is about three times as many people that died in Hurricane Katrina. No shade in New Orleans, but for, again, for some reason, this is harder for us to remember, harder for us to recall, and it's worth asking why. It's worth asking why we are having a difficult time as a society really dwelling on the travesty of this situation. When the hurricane came, the infrastructure just wasn't ready for it. The island was quickly overwhelmed. Hospitals were way past capacity, and there was some reporting that communities and families chose on their own or at the encouragement of civil authorities to create what are called mass graves. Mass graves are not pleasant, okay? This is not a large burial ground. Mass graves are the result of a common myth that if a human body is left out and decomposes, that'll pose a great risk to other people around them. And that's just not true. The Red Cross has spoken out against that, but oftentimes still people and civil authorities will kind of push for these mass graves to get people under the ground. And usually what happens at a mass grave is that bodies are piled up, they're identified, there are plastic bags assigned to the bodies. Maybe if there's a medical professional around, they'll actually cut into the person and remove a piece of their femur so that hopefully at one point they could be identified through DNA testing. And then the body is bagged up and any available hands that are around take that body to its resting place. Maybe even children in this case. Now, this is in Puerto Rico. This is actually the typhoon that hit the Philippines in 2013, which is another uh, natural massacre that we quickly forget, where mass graves were evident and all around. Think about that family. Think about the fact that this world is so broken that disasters like these create that kind of chaos, that kind of harm. I'm, uh, I'm reminded of a friend of mine named Lincoln Moore who... Uh, worked in Haiti when cholera broke out in 2010. Again, another natural disaster. He was working to coordinate medical relief, and he would constantly be floating from tent to tent, trying to make sure that medical work could get passed around as needed. And I remember him telling me a story about working in one of those tents and sitting near a daughter and her father, both of whom just precarious in their uh, health, both close to dying. And eventually the daughter did die. And the father realized it because he was in the cot next to her. 
and he just began to weep. And Lincoln was helpless. There was nothing that he could do. There's nothing he could do to bring her back. There's nothing he could do for the father. And he recalls saying out loud, where is God? That is a natural response in a situation like that. And that's because of the brokenness in this world. The brokenness that we all deal with. It's not just in our relationships, it's in creation too. That's one dimension of this absence of peace. There's also the historic dimension. And Ecclesiastes 7 talks about this. It talks about that when we look at history, we tend to view it a little bit more rosy than it actually is. And that's kind of what happened at the turn of the 20th century. The turn of the 20th century, there was a lot of gains being had. Um, The Civil War had ended official slavery, although Jim Crow was still going on. Um, We had advances in medicine that were curing plagues and diseases that hadn't been cured up to this point. We had flight, we had automobiles, and we had a lot of optimism. There was so much optimism at the beginning of the 20th century. We were sure that this was it. This was going to be the time where peace would be established in the world. You don't have to be a history buff to know that the 20th century was not peaceful. Think about all of the wars that occurred during this time when society was sure we'd figured things out. Almost 200 million deaths across multiple wars. World War I, World War II, the Congolese War, Russian Civil War, the regimes of Stalin and Mao, and other smaller wars where less than a million people died. During the century where, again, we thought we had finally figured out the way to end conflict. World War I was referred to as the war to end all wars. 66 million people died after that in World War II. And the generation of peace that we've had since all of these major wars still has not brought back the optimism that we had at the beginning of the 20th century. It's almost offensive to suggest that we could ever achieve true peace at this point because we have this history in our place. Think about the generations of people that died. Think about the weapons that were used in these wars. Think about the fact that words like Holocaust are known to our kids, that words like genocide are familiar, that we don't have to go to a dictionary to look up what that means. That's because of what just happened not too long ago. People are still alive from these wars. That kind of brokenness should lead us to to sorrow, and it often does, and it's often overwhelming. That's the historic dimension of sin. There's also a corporate one. And that's more closer to home. That's more in our community. And there are so many examples of this. You know, we just had a fire on Iroquois and Pingree that burned down at least one, possibly two houses um, that were occupied. And of course, the fire department responded as quickly as they could, but the fire hydrant that was nearest by was destroyed. And it was destroyed because of some goofball who was probably driving way too fast and had run it over. It actually got repaired. And then another driver came and crashed into that fire hydrant destroyed it for a second time, which led to a delay in the fireman's response, which led to more damage. And that's going to be, continue to be a theme as long as our city has a lot of abandoned homes. And this is something that we are working against in in our church and in this community. Um, I could talk about that. I could talk about crime. Crime is like a very common thing to talk about in Detroit. I think it's a little overused. I think it's kind of a cliche. I think it gets sort of blown out of proportion. There's a map of a bunch of recent crime incidents in Detroit. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about are sports stadiums. Sports stadiums? What's wrong wrong with sports stadiums? Let's talk about one. Let's talk about the Little Caesars Arena. Very exciting. 
brand new space. This is the original rendering for the stadium. Uh, originally, the plan was for it to cost about $450 million, uh, paid up by the Illich family. Eventually, the stadium's price has now ballooned to closer to $900 million, and about $400 million of that $900 million is coming from public subsidy, money that uh, our state and city have set aside to make projects like this happen so that they can create jobs and opportunities for people in the city. Um, in this case, because not only a stadium was being suggested, but something called District Detroit, which was this idea of having housing and restaurants and kind of an integrated space, city council was very excited, got behind it, uh, was able to assign a lot of these public dollars to make the project happen. Um, and that's what we have today. We have District Detroit. Well, not exactly. Um, if you've driven by or you've been to a game lately, you won't see a lot of these promised developments. Um, it's helpful sometimes to kind of take a quick inventory. At one point, the Olympia Development, the company that was doing this for the Illiches, said that there would be 700 residential units in six different buildings. Today, there is not a single residential unit that's been built. The company agreed to getting at least 50% of its employees from Detroit. The number's been closer to 20%. Uh, this District Detroit concept of all these different commercial and residential ventures, we don't have that, but we do have 27 new parking lots. So if you ever need parking, there is plenty of parking around the stadium. And man, is it expensive. It's like 30 bucks, 40 bucks. And now, uh, it was just reported this week that... Um, Olympia has backed out of something called uh, a handshake deal, which means it's not a deal, unfortunately, with something called uh, the Neighborhood Service Organization. It's a nonprofit in Detroit that works with the chronically homeless um, in the city. This is called the Tumani Center, and I have unfortunately been there. Um, I drove someone there, and I immediately took her somewhere else because that building is a disaster. Um, it's not well kept, but it is usually the last option for a lot of people who need somewhere to go. Um, and I'm talking like electrical wires are exposed. I'm talking like just a giant open room. Um, there's like one staff person there. I mean, it's just not a safe place. And Olympia decided to step up because they want to buy this building, knock it down, do more stuff. They offered a million and a half dollars to relocate this to another spot closer to us here on Grashton Mac um, and to build out a better space. Well, along with many of the other promises that have been made, this promise is also looking like it's not going to get fulfilled. It was reported this week that Olympia was going to back out of the deal, and since the media attention, they're saying they may come back. I don't know. You tell me. There's a track record here. Um, the prophet Amos has something to say about this in Amos 5. He says, Because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes and grain from him, like maybe public subsidies, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you will not dwell on them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine. And he's talking about, you know, the long term. Sure, you, you do actually sit in a, in a home, but that's not going to be enough. That's not going to give you the comfort that you're seeking. That sounds good, but to be honest with you, when I look at something like this and I see what happens and I look at the historic evil and I look at the cosmic evil that we're talking about, Amos's words are, they kind of fall flat. To be honest, that's how I feel sometimes. I, I empathize more with what Longfellow said in his third stanza. Then in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so what do we do? How do we respond? 
What perspective do we need when facing that kind of evil in this world? All the brokenness that shouldn't be here. We could give in. We could feel like the darkness is winning. And I'm here to tell you, family, it's not. Fear not. We do not worship a God who struggles against darkness. There is no struggle. John 1 is clear. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8 is clear. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brokenness and evil in this world is real and it is prevalent, but we do not worship a God that is subject to it. We worship the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, it may be hard to see the prince of peace at work. And I admit, as I have already in the sermon, it's hard for me to see it at times. But I think that that's because we lack perspective. What do I mean by perspective? Well, I've defined it up here. James, you could go to that slide. A patient trust in our faithful God to work all things, even apparent evil, for our good and his glory. Sometimes when we encounter the brokenness in the world, sometimes when we even encounter God in scripture, we struggle to have a healthy perspective. We look at God flooding the world in the story of Noah. We look at God leading his people to conquer Canaan in bloody war. We look at God refusing to answer Job and tell him why Job has suffered the way that he did. We look at God striking down a man who tries to catch the Ark of the Covenant falling off of a cart, using his hands to touch the Ark in a way that's forbidden, and striking him down dead. We look at these things and we balk and we say, who is this God? And our inclination is to blame God and to look at the ways that he's wrong and the ways that he is not acting properly. And that is not appropriate. That is not what we should do. That is not the first step that we should take. This is the same God that the angels are rejoicing over. This is the same God that we worship and has died so that we can live. And so what we need to do is correct our own perspective and recognize our own limitations. The author C.S. Lewis does a really nice job of explaining this in his book, Weight of Glory, and he uses a couple of illustrations. One is the idea of hiking, which is not in this quote. And for those of you that have done a, a good mountain hike, you get to a certain point when you're above the tree line where you think you're at the top and you start hiking and maybe you pick up your, your speed a little bit and you see the crest and you get over and like all of a sudden there's another hill. And then you, you start hiking again. You think, okay, this is the one, this is the one. And you get to the crest of that one and there's more. And even when you're hiking in the tree line, you know, you, you don't see a lot above you and you think that you're almost there and you're not. And your eyes aren't tricking you. It's just you lack a certain perspective. And that's what C.S. Lewis talks about in this book. He also talks about a child, a child who is playing in a big pile of mud and is making castles and mud pies out of it and is just having a ball. Um, I could totally see Martin doing this someday, hopefully. Hopefully I can keep him out of the mud, um, but I doubt it. And, you know, kids love that kind of stuff. And sometimes it's really hard to get them to come back home for food, or even say, in C.S. Lewis's example, to go on a sailing trip, which would be way more fun, which would be so much more enjoyable, which would expose him to seeing fish and maybe whales and waves and sun and clouds, just all these things that this kid has probably never been exposed to. But you can't convince that kid to leave his mud because he loves it. The only way that that kid is going to make the choice to go on the sailing trip is if he trusts the person who's inviting him. 
and trust the fact that that person knows better than he does. Sound familiar? That is the limited perspective that we have. We think we know it all. We think we know right from wrong. We think we know how to put life in order. But let's be honest, we can barely keep our lives in order. We have a hard enough time getting out of bed, cooking breakfast, exercising, getting our work done, and yet we want to tell the God of the universe how to run this show. What a lack of humility. So let's try to think about this. Let's try to see how we can correct our perspective or even how a more comprehensive perspective that God offers can help correct some of this misunderstanding and this hardship when we see evil in the world. So I want to look at a couple of case studies. In Luke chapter 2, we see a man named Simeon. Simeon is a man who God told that he would see the Messiah before he died. At the point in Luke 2, he's pretty old, uh, but he spends a lot of time in the temple. And one day he sees Mary and Joseph enter the temple. And he recognizes right away that this baby is the Messiah. And he approaches Mary and Joseph and he takes the baby into his arms and he begins to prophesy. And it's not exactly the most uplifting prophecy in the world, especially for a guy who's been waiting his whole life for this moment. And one of the things he prophesies is that a sword would pierce the heart of Mary in her soul. Now, looking at that in the moment, it doesn't seem like any good would come out of that prophecy. But because we have the benefit of a longer perspective, we know that what he's referring to is the death of Christ, which in fact was a good thing, even though it was terrible. And we'll talk about that more soon. But this is an example of how making a hasty judgment in a limited perspective can lead to wrong conclusions. Let's use another case study. Let's imagine that you are in a locked room, no windows, and you see uh, the room filled with masked individuals. The individuals are swarming around the table, and on that table, there's an unconscious, barely clothed person. And then the people begin to cut into that person who remains unconscious and begin removing flesh and even organs. All right, this is like, sounds like something out of a horror movie. Where, where am I going with this? Looking at this, knowing only what we see, it looks pretty bad. It doesn't look like any good is coming out of this situation. But if we have a more robust perspective, this is the surgeon's table. This is an operation that's intended to save this person's life. And it could have all the appearances of evil. But with a more comprehensive perspective, this could be Josh Eby, a member here at church, who's doing something that could repair someone's significant injury or even save their life. Again, a situation that looks, with limited perspective, like pure evil actually being used for good. Let's look at a third case study, the most important one of all, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. There are entire books written about the miscarriage and mockery of justice that Jesus suffered. None of the rules were followed in his situation. It was a disaster. And then he was subject to a kind of physical abuse that the human body simply could not endure. That's why he died within hours of being hung on the cross. And most people would last for days or sometimes even weeks. He died in hours. Now, anybody looking at that situation with any sort of remotely sympathetic view to Jesus would have to look and say that nothing good could come out of this. And that's exactly what the disciples did. The disciples didn't stick around. They fled. They went underground. They cowered in fear because even after following Jesus for three years, they could not look at this situation and think any good could come out of this. 
they had a limited perspective. And yet now, with our more full perspective today, we know the significance of this event. Jesus' death was perhaps the most beautiful, incredible, and transformative moment in all of history. Christ's death ignited the opportunity for peace on earth. It allowed for peace between man and God. It established the beginning of the church, which was called to be a peacemaking institution. And it unveiled the kingdom that would one day consume this world in shalom and peace. That horrible tragedy was in fact used for good. And it's also a reminder, family, that it cannot be the case that God does not love us. In all of this evil, we are tempted to believe that God just doesn't care. That is not true, family, and the cross is the evidence for it. How can it be the case that God does not love us when he chose to subject himself to that mockery of injustice, to that suffering? He didn't have to do that. He did it so that he could identify with us, to suffer alongside us, and ultimately to save us. In all of these examples, in all of the case studies, God is not sweeping evil from under the rug. He's not trying to hide it. He is using what appears to be an unredeemable situation for greater good, just like Paul talks about in Romans 8. And we see this time and time again in Scripture. So, what now? How do we respond? How do we try to reconcile this limited perspective issue as well as the fact um, that there's still evil in the world and that that exists and it's real? The world would say that we should just kind of take a break, that we should recoil, um, that when we're trying to think about the problems of this world, we should just call it a day. That is not the Christian way. The Christian way is actually to think about the big questions of life, to think about the end of all things, because that is where we find our hope. That is where we find our peace. We see that in Revelation chapter 21, where the apostle John is given a vision of the way things will be in the future. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne. He who was seated on the throne. That being Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is our hope. That is the source of our peace. We don't have to be afraid of thinking about the big questions. We don't have to be afraid about thinking of evil in this world. We can look to this vision. We can see that all destruction will be rebuilt. All chaos will be restored. All wrongs will be righted. That Jesus is going to redeem all the cosmic and historic and corporate evil as he guides creation back into resurrection, renewal, and restoration. We place our hope and our peace in this, that one day everything will be righted, everything that was wronged will be corrected. And I can't say it any better than Dostoevsky says it in the book Brothers Karamazov. He says, I believe like a child, one of his characters says this, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish 
like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that we've shed, that it will make it possible not only to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That is what we're longing for. That is our expectation as the people of Christ. And we have two choices, and there are typically two ways that Christians respond to this truth. They can choose one of two options, either to be, just to exist, to be happy, content, comfortable, and await for God to do his work, or we can choose to do. We can choose to be peacemakers. We can choose to actively participate in the coming of Christ's kingdom today. And what do I mean by saying participate or anticipate? Anticipation is this idea that's captured in Romans 6. Um, Paul talks about this idea that as Christians, we are in Christ both in his death and resurrection now. And we have to consider, he says, what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus now. And what that means is we have to think about what it looks like to live the resurrected life now, even in the midst of a broken world. How do we do this? N.T. Wright, a scholar and New Testament theologian, um, does a nice job of explaining what it means to do this kind of work of, of living the resurrected life and anticipating the work that Jesus says he's going to do in Revelation 21, but doing it now. And he uses a bunch of different really helpful examples. Um, if you're an instrumentalist and you work in an orchestra, sometimes the conductor will tell you um, that you need to anticipate the beat, uh, which means you might play your note just slightly ahead of when you're supposed to. Um, or, for example, if you're a chess player and you recognize what's going on in the chessboard in front of you, like Maurice Ashley here, one of my favorite chess players, um, you might be able to anticipate what's going on, and so you're going to take action in the present in order to respond to what you're seeing will happen in the future. Or maybe you're a center fielder in baseball where you're taught to be able to anticipate where the ball's going based on the hitter's patterns and techniques, um, and then to be able to get what's called a good jump on the ball by reading where the ball is going and being there when it happens. That's the kind of anticipation that Paul is talking about in Romans 6 and N.T. Wright is explaining. He also uses this example of loyal subjects who follow a king even before the king has been placed back in his seat and in his throne. In this scenario, N.T. Wright talks about where an evil king is sitting on the throne illegitimately. And the loyal subjects to the true king aren't only obedient to the true king when the true king has returned to his seat, but they obey him in rebellion against the illegitimate king. And that rebellion anticipates the rule of the rightful king taking his place. All of those examples of anticipation, that's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to live in the present how we will one day live in the future. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we do that? How do we live today as we should in the future? And I would say of many things that we need to live as peacemakers, knowing, as it says in Scripture, that additionally and first of all, the work is done by Christ And then his people always follow that peacemaking work up themselves. Look at how scripture speaks of this beginning in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is Christ's work first, but it doesn't stop there. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, and he made us one. It has implications for our life today. Broken and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ's peace is the basis for unity even in the midst of diversity. John 14, peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We can have peace because of the peace that Christ gives us. Our hearts don't have to be troubled. Go on to the next slide, James. And then we have a response. Psalms 34, 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek out peace and pursue it. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the peace that we're called to, to be peacemakers, to seek peace, to live and expand the kingdom of God as it is defined by peace. I'm going to warn you, be careful. This kind of peace is radicalizing. It'll change your life, just like it changed the lives of the early church. Remember we talked about them at the beginning of the sermon, how they greeted one another with the greeting of peace? These individuals suffered relentless persecution. And I'm not talking about the persecution we talk about, where we're made fun of or given a hard time for what we think or what we say. This was legitimate, painful, physical persecution. Families ripped apart, marched into coliseums to be slaughtered by gladiators and animals, crucified, burned alive. And yet these people not once ever resorted to violence in response. In fact, they were committed to peace even in the midst of that kind of suffering. Look at how Justin Martyr explains this concept and explains their response. He says, we ourselves were well familiar with war and murder. But all of us have exchanged our swords for plowshares, our spears for farm tools. And now we cultivate the fear of God, justice, kindness to men, faith, with the expectation of the future given to us by the Father himself through the crucified one. That's what it looks like for the church to respond with peace. Look at how he even brings scripture into this document. How he's citing to Isaiah 65, this vision of the new heavens and new earth, this vision of the final resurrection, exchanging swords for plowshares, beating spears into farm tools. That's straight out of scripture, family. Clearly, martyr and the early church had sworn their allegiance to the Prince of Peace and had not given into the ways of this world. And as we experience an intense climate, politically, socially, and otherwise, it's worth asking, and I won't get into it now, but it's worth asking ourselves, are we perpetuating cycles in this society, cycles of anger and frustration, or are we looking to disrupt them? Are we looking to behave in a different way, in a way that signifies to the rest of the world that we don't do things the way that they do, but we follow the risen Savior? So this brings us all the way back to Longfellow. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, he says, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. What is the source of his peace in this poem that we read together at the beginning of this sermon? It isn't something in the present. It's something he's looking forward to in the future. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. In the face of all the suffering he experienced, he has peace because of what he knows will occur in the future. We just sang before this sermon, It is well with my soul. 
Horatio Spafford is the author of that song. What many don't know is that when he wrote that, his family had died in a tragic shipping disaster. And yet he was still able to write these songs and to say, even so it is well with my soul. Why? Because when the trump shall resound and the Lord descend, when Christ returns, that will bring all things back. That is the source of his peace, not things in the present. Philippians 2, Paul speaks about this. While suffering in jail, that he's learned to be content with much and with little. And yet he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. Why? Because of what Christ would do. Not what he was doing at the time. Paul was in prison. He was suffering. But Paul had learned to be content in hardship because of his hope in the future. All of these men found their shalom, their peace in one person, the Prince of Peace. And they had that future hope. And so I want to ask you guys, as you think about this, and I know we we went through a lot, but I want to ask you, how are you going to respond to the Prince of Peace? I think there's kind of three ways that people generally respond. They can respond by, like the lawyer in Luke 10, who tries to justify himself, tries to change the definition of who his neighbor is or or what it means to to really do the, the greatest command, which is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us do that. Some of us kind of try to move the chessboard a little bit, kind of try to redefine things for ourselves and for our benefit. Don't do that, family. Don't try to weasel your way out of this. Accept the truth of the Prince of Peace. You could respond like the rich young ruler who chose, unfortunately, not to leave behind everything that he had. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He accepted his teachings. But when the cost was asked of him, he refused to give it up. Don't hold on too tightly to something in this world for something that is so much greater. Instead, I'm asking that we would respond just like the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus, everything that was in their possession, even their families, and followed him. That is what he's asking of us, and that is where we find our true peace. Let's pray. Father, We are wrestling through this season, Lord. It is a difficult season, a season where dissonance between um, what we long for and what we experience is very present. Advent is a time where we're confronted with evil in the world and yet also your faithfulness to us by bringing Jesus. And so, Lord, we take hold of that past promise, Lord. We take hold of what the angels declared that peace on earth is possible now. And we long for the work that you will do in the future, long for the transformation that will occur one day. For now, Lord, give us the grace to be peacemakers, to respond to you, not as the rest of the world does, Lord, not trying to justify ourselves, not trying to hold on to possessions too closely, Lord, but to leave everything and follow you. May you give us joy in that, Lord. May you correct our limited perspective. Help us to see that which we cannot see.